The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was known for her novels of life on the Great Plains, including classics like O Pioneers, The Song of the Lark, and My Antonia, sweeping and penetrating tales of European immigrants as they settled across western states in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was a journey Willa Cather herself had made as she traveled from her grandmother's farm in Virginia to Nebraska when she was nine years old. But after developing a taste for literature, she started looking back east, moving first to Pittsburgh and then to New York City, where she found success as an editor and as a writer. Often viewed as a woman successful ahead of her time and an artist who rose from the ranks of commercial writing to find her way as a novelist, there's a danger of viewing Willa Cather as a pioneer herself, an independent woman, perhaps even someone who lived a life largely in solitude. But she was not alone. She had a life partner named Edith Lewis, and although the press largely overlooked this same-sex relationship in Cather's day, the two lived a deeply connected life. What was that like for them? Who was Edith Lewis? How did their relationship help Cather and her writing? And what does it mean for us? Our guest today, Melissa J. Homestead, has written a book addressing these questions, and she joins us to give us a new way of thinking about a critical figure in 20th century American letters. Willa Cather and Edith Lewis with Melissa J. Homestead today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Oh boy, it's a good show for us today. Melissa J. Homestead is bringing us the news for Valentine's Day. I didn't even think about that. Here we go. A nice love story as it happens. Melissa J. Homestead has done the work and is delivering the goods and we profit from that. But first, there was a bit of news I wanted to share with you. News. This comes from the world of Shakespeare studies. Quite an astonishing little development with an emphasis on the word little. A few years ago, they found a small notebook handwritten by what appears to be the first recorded instance of a Shakespeare superfan. The notebook is now going on display. What is this notebook? This is what is so great. It's a guy. They assume it's a man because the notebook also has some lecture notes on Aristotle that's written in Latin, and women weren't allowed to attend university and most likely didn't know Latin, so that's their clue. We can't really rule it out, because we don't know anything about this guy. I'll call him a guy. All we know is that he crammed his notes onto 48 small notebook pages. This was the stuff he wanted to remember, and he loved going to see Shakespeare plays. This is from the, the 1640s or thereabouts. Shakespeare was still very new. And this guy was going to plays and writing down his favorite lines. Why? Why would he do that? Maybe because he wanted to use those lines in conversation to seem witty or au courant. And maybe because he just 
wanted to savor them. Maybe because he saw the plays, went to a lot of plays, by the way. He's pulling from all kinds of them. Maybe he, he saw the plays and heard the lines and they moved him in some way. And he wanted to remember. He wrote in this almost microscopic handwriting on a book about half the size of the coaster that's currently holding my teacup. About the size of three fingers. If you hold up your three fingers, that's about how big this notebook is. 12,000 words plus he fit on these little pages. Hundreds of quotations from Shakespeare's plays. And here is what's great. His selection, this guy from the 1640s, what is that, almost 400 years ago, his selection of lines reveals his personality. We know what he found funny. We know what he found dramatic. We know what he thought sounded good to his ear. He chose these lines, and they're not the lines that we might expect. To be or not to be, well, that line didn't make the cut. That's not here. <laughs> Maybe it was so memorable he didn't need to write that one down. Instead, he chose a different line from Hamlet and crook the pregnant hinges of the knee. He wrote it slightly differently. Maybe because he was working from imperfect memory or maybe the line delivery was different on the in the play that he saw. Anyway, he, he liked that image that the knee works like a hinge. And when you bend your knee, it resembles a woman's pregnancy as your knee swells out like a belly. He wrote it a little bit differently. He wrote it as, And crook ye pregnant hinges of ye knee. One imagines this guy nodding, smiling, thinking, Yes, never thought of that before. Bend a knee, you, can't, you could just say, And bend your knee. But that's not quite as poetic, is it? Instead, you could say, crook the pregnant hinges of the knee and, and bring in a metaphor. Imagine him watching that in the, in the theater and, and then at home by lamplight, writing the line in his notebook. That's one I want to remember. This Shakespeare dude, he thinks to himself, he's done it again. Another modification is a line from Richard III. He doesn't write, Now is the winter of our discontent, the show-stopping line that we all know and quote, or a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, incredibly famous. Instead, he wrote the Queen's Curse. My tongue should to thy ears not name my boys till that my nails were anchored in thine eyes. My nails were anchored in thine eyes. Imagine that. What do we get? A slap on the stage at the Oscars. Take my wife's name out of your mouth. Here we have. My nails will be anchored in thine eyes. He boiled it down a bit. He said, my nails I'll anchor in thine eyes. A scholar in this article, quoted in this article, this is an article in The Guardian, by the way, that I'm taking this from. A scholar in the article named Tiffany Stern summarizes this way. It says, he likes metaphors 
and is fascinated by pregnancy. He's got an ear for words that go together nicely. He likes jokes and references to thunder. End quote. I love this so much. We devote so much time to thinking about Shakespeare. What was he like? What was his life like? How did he come to write these amazing plays? What was it like to be so gifted? But there's a kind of obligatory aspect to Shakespeare because he's so celebrated, so canonized. He's been required viewing and required reading for so many decades, if not centuries. Sometimes it's hard to see him with freshness. But here's a guy who did. Here's a guy who went to the plays before they were required reading or viewing. Even though He went even though they were not required. He sought them out. He loved them. He took notes. It's like a man who learns to play piano in retirement, not because his parents make him or because he has aspirations of giving concerts or even of entertaining others, but simply because he likes how the music sounds and how it feels when his fingers press the keys. And he wants that sound, the simple tunes, he wants that to be part of his life. He likes jokes and references to thunder. Presumably, he also likes riotous comedy and heart-rending tragedy. He was a human being living in another time, and no doubt he had his, his own share of ups and downs. And along with that, a life he lived, he sprinkled in a little theater going, and when he was going to see these plays, he found his guy, his dude, this guy Shakespeare, who could really bring it, you know? That's how I imagine this notebook writer thinking, this is my guy. <laughs> I'm going to go see more by this guy. This guy Shakespeare can really bring it, can't he? And I respond across the centuries. Yep, he really could. Okay, so that's our appetizer today. Now let's bring out the main course. Our guest, Melissa J. Homestead, in my conversation with her, she's going to tell us all about a partnership. Willa Cather, the great journalist turned artist, the bard of the Great Plains, had a life partner who was mostly behind the scenes, at least when it came to the general public. There were efforts to downplay this relationship, a kind of, uh, this is all known to friends, but not for publication, angle to their relationship, concealed mostly from the public. Her name was Edith Lewis, and the two are in fact buried next to one another. That's how close they were. And Professor Homestead will tell us how they got together, what their life together was like, and how understanding more about Edith Lewis deepens our understanding of one of the 20th century's great novelists, Willa Cather. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Melissa J. Homestead, the director of the Cather Project, which promotes teaching and research about Willa Cather at the University of Nebraska. Her new book, The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis, recovers the romantic relationship and creative collaboration between Cather and her partner, magazine editor and advertising writer, Edith Lewis. Melissa Homestead, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. I enjoy literature and history. Oh, good. <laughs> two for two. So you mentioned that, speaking of both, you mentioned that you were writing an honors thesis about Willa Cather when uh, you were in college. And I'm wondering, what drew you to her back in 1984? I had actually been introduced to Willa Cather as an author by my favorite high school teacher in Pennsylvania. Mm. My senior year, I had a college application essay where I had to find three people to invite to a dinner party in 1902. Mm -hmm. And I went to talk to Mrs. Reese and I said, I don't know what I want from 1902. <laughs> and she said, I think you should read Willa Cather and Edith Wharton. I think you'll like them. And mm. I ignored the Edith Wharton part. And yeah. I went and checked two of Cather's novels out of the public library and just was, I stayed up all night, read two novels in a weekend. Um, and then didn't write that application essay. I didn't apply to that college, but I became a Cather fan right from that moment. Right. Did you ever think through who the other two people would have been in 1902 that you would have wanted to join you and Willa Cather? No, I don't think I ever really did. In fact, I remember <laughs> looking at an encyclopedia as well, which had this really strange, it was the World Book Encyclopedia, and it had this really strange yeah. article that made it sound like Willa Cather was nobody in 1902, and you wouldn't want her to dinner anyway. Oh, um, yeah. And also, it was a really inaccurate kind of scoffing encyclopedia article, but I thought, I don't care what the man who wrote this encyclopedia article said. She's my new favorite author. Yeah. Oh, interesting, because I grew up with the World Book Encyclopedias in our house, and I don't remember ever having the the wherewithal when I was, you know, eight and nine and ten and to question an article. It seemed so authoritative, and it must... It must I was have been 17. pretty bad. Oh, 17. Okay. And I was 17 at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, yes. Yeah. And what's the general sense of Cather that people have that your book seeks to correct? I know people think of her sometimes as being kind of an anti-modernist or backward looking and, and that kind of thing. So what was the World Book article? Did it have elements of that in it? Well, part of what it, it did seem to say that she rejected the modern world. And it also suggested that she started writing. I think it suggested that she started writing about Nebraska after she moved back there, mm. which is 
absolutely incorrect. Yeah. So people do tend to think of her as backward looking and, you know, against the modern world, separate from it. They think of her as an isolated artist, lonely, mm. alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also sometimes think that she lived her whole life in Nebraska uh, when she was really, for most of her life, a New Yorker. So that's part of what my book does recover, too, because her relationship with Edith Lewis, the time they spent living together, that's a New York story, even though they were both from Nebraska. Right. That is a big thing that people miss, I think. That's something that I didn't really understand until I learned more about Willa Cather. You sort of think of her as being almost like a Laura Ingalls Wilder or something, and she's living on the plains, (laughs) and then she sits and writes. or you know. But to have her in Manhattan, in Greenwich Village, and part of the magazine world, just that fact alone gives a much different impression of Willa Cather than what I've described earlier. Well, and she did make long visits back home um, until her parents died, and then she didn't go back. After her parents died, there was a family reunion in the early 1930s, and then she never went back to Nebraska. She did make a lot of long visits. She stayed for months sometimes, but she never wrote there. Mm. She had to be someplace else to write those books about Nebraska. Right. Okay, so when you were doing the research... You located a book called Willa Cather Living, A Personal Record by Edith Lewis, written in 1953. So who was Edith Lewis and what was her personal record? What was her relationship to Cather? So Edith Lewis was, at the time that she and Cather met, uh, a relatively recent graduate of Smith College in Massachusetts, which is where I went to college. Mm. But she was born and raised mostly in Lincoln, Nebraska. And at the time that they met, Lewis had spent one year teaching school after college and I think was just not interested in staying in Lincoln, Nebraska and doing the conventional thing. And she was about to go off to New York City to look for a job in publishing, which she did successfully soon after that. And then she was in magazines and then she was an advertising writer. So that's the sort of trajectory for her. Mm -hmm. Cather at that point when they met was a school teacher in Pittsburgh So she hadn't actually made the jump. I mean, New York was clearly where she wanted to go, and she wanted to be a full-time fiction writer, but she hadn't figured it out. So Edith Lewis was younger than her and a little more audacious, I think, at the moment that Hmm. they met in Nebraska in 1903 in the home of a mutual friend. Someone, a woman, a sort of interesting woman who published a weekly newspaper in Lincoln, Nebraska, and who had published both of them in her newspaper, in fact. Oh, so... I guess it might be a little bit hard because they're uh, from different age groups, about nine years apart or something. But are, mm-hmm, are they mm-hmm. from the basic social set? Are they? Did they have very different childhoods, or are they basically from a kind of Lincoln that you know they were they were they were bound to meet if they had been closer in age? Well, uh, Cather spent her college years in Lincoln and one year at a sort of preparatory school, her education in Red Cloud, Nebraska. She couldn't meet the admission standards to the university. Most students from small towns couldn't. So she was there for five years. Mm. Edith Lewis was there for her whole adolescence with oh, uh, right, right. a year in Kearney, right? So she, she had a more um, cosmopolitan, although still Lincoln, Nebraska, a more cosmopolitan urban upbringing than Willa Cather did. Willa Cather was born in, well, she was born in Virginia, spent the first about 10 years of her life in rural Virginia. And then her family moved to South Central Nebraska and they spent a year out on a farm and then lived in the small prairie town. 
So they actually had quite different lives. Um, there is the sort of moment when Cather is in Lincoln, um, and they, they probably would have met, except that there is a year when Edith Lewis's father is a receiver for a failed bank in Kearney, which is actually about back closer to where Cather was from. So she happened to be someplace else for about a year and a half, which is the time that they might have met, you know, even with the age difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cather did have younger friends, so she was very good friends with Dorothy Canfield, the daughter of the chancellor of the university, who was about the same age as Edith Lewis and, in fact, knew Edith Lewis um, as children. They knew each other. So mm-hmm. there's just, you know, they, they didn't happen to meet, but they very well could have. Right. Um, but I think that the, the real move, the real reason that they come together is that they are both setting their sights on uh, the cultural and literary world of New York City yeah. rather than the, they do have that commonality of Nebraska, but it's where they're heading that they really have in common. Yeah. So I kind of wondered if, given their age differences, if Cather was was either in Greenwich Village or was he- headed there immediately and Lewis followed her there. But it sounds like maybe oh. Lewis was more inspired to go. And It's the opposite. Yeah. Edith Lewis was there first. Edith oh. Lewis moved there in 1903. Willa Cather didn't move there until 1906. Right. And in fact, before she moved there, when she was offered a position as an editor at McClure's Magazine, uh, she wanted to visit New York. She wanted to spend their time writing. She wanted to see the city. And she had a new friend who lived there and gave her a place to stay and could take her around to all of the sort of bohemian sites. So it was really Edith Lewis, even though she was younger, who was out ahead in that yeah, respect. Right. And do we know when the personal relationship began? Well, certainly the personal relationship began when they met. Yeah. When I guess I should say romantic ro- relationship. Yeah. yeah. Romantic, right, right. <laughs> when the romantic relationship began... Um, You know, it's hard to say exactly, but I certainly think for me, a key moment is that they moved in together in the fall of 1908. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were in the same, uh, you know, rooming house on Washington Square. But when they decide to take an apartment together, I think that's a sort of sign of an important transformation in the relationship. Right. And they had both been working for McClure's magazine I guess, since at least 1906. Did their professional careers overlap? Are they sort of rivals fighting for the same uh, column inches and so on, or are they in different realms? Uh, You know, it's it's hard to track exactly what Edith Lewis is doing in those years, but I think they are, you know, Cather, while she's still there, uh, you know, when Cather becomes managing editor, Edith Lewis at that point, I think, becomes art editor of the magazine. Mm. She holds a whole bunch of different roles at the magazine. So they are working together on projects uh, when Cather is going up to Boston to work on research and writing of this expose of Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian Science Movement. Edith Lewis is sent up by the magazine to read proofs with Willa Cather, for example. So I'd say that, you know, Cather is in higher positions of authority as long as she's there. But when she leaves, Edith Lewis is still there, and Edith Lewis edits Willa Cather as a contributor to McClure's magazine. Mm, Right. And do you get the sense that their interests were aligned or their aesthetics were aligned? Or can you tell if if you cover up the byline, can you tell who's written what? Well, most of what Edith Lewis wrote is the sort of anonymous stuff in Mm. magazines. Mm -hmm. Uh, So her one uh, published short story in a national magazine 
it's got some similar thematics to what Willa Cather is doing and thinking um, around that time. Her stories and her first short story collection, The Troll Garden, are about artists. And Edith Lewis's story, Chains of Darkness, uh, is about an aspiring young writer, a man, not a woman. So I think that they've got similar interests. I don't have a big enough data set, as it were, of Edith Lewis's writing to be able to say, um, you know, writing with her name on it. Uh, right. But a lot of what she does then in magazines, if you look at magazines, so much of magazines, there are the bylined articles, but there, there's all those sort of editorial columns and notes introducing works and things. Um, so a lot of the work of magazines is collaborative and anonymous, and that's a lot more of the kind of writing that Edith Lewis ends up doing. Right. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and learn more about what you've called their creative partnership. So we are back with Melissa Homestead talking about Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. So you call it a creative partnership, which could mean many different things on a practical level. How did their creative partnership work? Well, there are two ways I think it's creative. One is in the personal sense and that they both are ambitious career women who are looking to find a way to have uh, rich emotional lives, and also to have successful careers. Yeah. And I think that marriage, traditional marriage with a man at that point in time, would not have actually let either of them achieve the kind of goals that they had. So they created their own model for what marriage would be, is my sense. Yeah. Um, the other thing that they are doing is working together on Cather's published fiction. Mm. So that is mm -hmm. part of what I'm seeing is that Willa Cather is increasingly a published bylined author and Edith Lewis is behind the scenes editing her work. Now, some of what you can see, and you have to think of, okay, what's your evidence? And Cather does seem to have thrown away a lot of drafts of works and things when they lost the second apartment they leased in Greenwich Village at Five Bank Street. They lost their lease in 1927 to subway construction. And she does seem to have tossed a lot of old papers because they went into storage and she's just like, I don't need to keep these. So you don't have the early works. You don't have those early drafts available for most of her earlier works. But you can still imagine that once you see that start, the first book where there is that edited type draft is The Professor's House, and Edith Lewis's handwriting is all over it. So clearly this mm. was not something new. She'd been doing it for a while. So there is just a wealth of evidence if you look at those documents of Edith Lewis, who was editing magazines and then writing prose for advertisements, right? So she was an advertising copywriter. And so she has to write these they're basically like flash fiction, right? Mm, you know, mm -hmm. if you look at advertising copy from magazines in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, there's right. a lot more text than we're used to seeing now. And so she was really a writer who was, you know, making sharp, compact little stories to make people feel things so that they would buy things. Mm. 
Right. Um, so she has she has a kind of skill that you can see her. I mean, it's kind of tradecraft. She's exercising her tradecraft on Willa Cather's fiction. Um, but then, of course, there's plenty of other things that are going on that you just have to guess or suppose. So, you know, you're eating breakfast in the morning. Do you talk about what you're going to do during the day um, when you are having conversations you're going to be talking about so say Willa Cather talks about uh, a scene she's trying to write or a problem she's having and Edith Lewis could give advice you don't have evidence of that but of course that happens Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other thing they do is that they travel together Mm. and particularly the travels in the southwest uh, and then travels in Quebec become the basis for novels that Willa Cather writes so they have shared experiences that generate literary works too. So it's it goes all the way up and down. Oh, and Edith Lewis, it's also pretty clear there are a couple of hints that the Alfred A. Knopf Inc., her publisher from 1920 on, they let her generate her own jacket copy, which is, you know, basically advertising copy. And it's pretty clear that Edith Lewis writes some of the advertising copy that goes inside the book jackets. Mm. So all the way from the beginning, all the way towards the end in distribution, you can find traces of her work. Yeah. You can imagine that for a novelist, having someone who has been a, an editor at McClure's with McClure's Magazine was a pretty incredible publication in its day. You can imagine that that would be such a perfect person to be that kind of sounding board and to help shape things and generate ideas and you know, somebody who needs to be in touch with an audience, with the public, and can probably weed out a lot of bad ideas <laughs> um, before they, you know, before Catherine would spend too much time on it or something. And and also to be able to read drafts and make suggestions and that kind of thing. I mean, did Lewis herself have aspirations of being a novelist? Did she admire what Catherine was able to do? But was there a risk that she might be envious of her being the more successful artist? one, or did they complement one another in a, did they not have that kind of a, a potential for rivalry? Well, I think the first thing to say is that there can be this sort of assumption that everything Edith Lewis ever did was because Willa Cather did something. Mm. So that there is a cause and effect relationship and it goes from Cather to Lewis. And I would say there are, you know, Edith Lewis did aspire to write. And she, to write literary fiction and poetry, she also published a couple of poems in national magazines, um, as well as the short story I mentioned. But uh, it's not just about Willa Cather and giving it up and sacrificing herself to Willa Cather. It's about things that are happening outside of her relationship with Cather, and in particular, just the financial collapse of her father's business enterprises and these terrible things happening in her family. Mm. I mean, she was being practical. She was being practical, but she was also channeling ambition. So, you know, you can see that. And when she applies for a job at the J. Walter Thompson company and is describing herself, you know, she's talking about how she wants to be the head of a large, successful organization. Mm. Well, sexism in the advertising industry, she doesn't end up being the head of anything. Uh, But she does end up being a highly respected professional, and she enjoys what she does. She knows its limits. But, you know, Billa Cather also knows the limits of what she's doing. And there is a way that she's drawing on Edith Lewis's expertise. And she's also has a partner with a salary while she is going Mm. to be making her money in a much less reliable way, right? Royalties take a while to come in. She 
writes much more slowly than a lot of other novelists out there who are churning out a novel every one or two years. Her pace of production is relatively slow. So I think that the two of them together, the security of one job and the risks of the other supported one another in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that Cather, there's a notion that Willa Cather didn't care about commercial demands or that she was just a pure artist. But she wanted her books to sell and she cared about book design and she cared about advertising. And then Edith Lewis also as well as an advertising copywriter. She cared about the aesthetics as a magazine editor. She cared about the aesthetics of magazine fiction. Even when she was editing a magazine that's much less well-known and didn't have the prestige of McClure's magazine, she was managing editor of Every Week magazine, which was a really cheap magazine. But she still had a strong sense of of aesthetics and she had a philosophy. So I would say that they complemented one another. And there's a little bit of sort of ribbing and joking evidence I find of that sort of thing, but I don't think that it's a rivalry or one is dominating the other. I think that it was a well-balanced partnership. She's not Salieri looking at Mozart and thinking, uh, oh, if only I could do what she does and and have the kind of success she does. She she was comfortable in her own skin. Yeah, and I think she was, I mean, she she had ambitions, clearly, and she was very successful, but there's also plenty of evidence that she was painfully shy mm. and sometimes a little awkward. And so there are ways that being the the power behind the throne, as it were, being the sight, you know, the, the invisible hand is it's an interesting place to be for someone mm-hmm. like her, I think, yeah. um, that there is something there is something pleasurable about knowing that you have responsibility, but that your name isn't there. It's not necessarily sort of repression. It's, you know, I know what my role is here, and I'm just going to sit back and uh, enjoy what I help to create. Mm, right. How did the two of them manage the travel Was Lewis able to continue her, I guess, advertising writing, or did she have to take leaves of absence from that, or how did they manage that? Well, I would say that, you know, at one point in my research, the J. Walter Thompson Company archive at Duke University in their special collections is, it's it's a massive archive that's been used by a lot of scholars of of business history and advertising. Mm, Yeah. But they have, you know, every internal newsletter, like the staff newsletter and everything. Uh And so I would read through, I read through everything, including all these little personal notes. I mean, I remember at one point I saw that these two women who worked in the mail room, they took six months off and traveled around the world, Uh, which is to say that, yes, Edith Lewis took leaves of absence, but this was kind of the culture of the place. Yeah. Um, people were people were highly compensated. They were economically comfortable. In fact, they were very nervous about the fact that they had much more means than the people they were trying to sell dish soap to. Right. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of commentary on that. It's like you know how can we reach the everyday people when we all live in big apartments on Park Avenue and hired maids to clean our houses? Right. How do we communicate with the everyday woman? So so I would say that. Yes, she took long leaves, but she could afford to. And even just the the summer in New York City before air conditioning, they pretty much shut down. I mean, there was a skeleton staff there, but they were pretty much shut down for a couple of months. Almost nobody was there. 
so it's not like anybody thought that uh, she was slacking and they just basically planned advertising campaigns so that everything was booked up in advance during that sort of fallow period when they were all off someplace cooler and more comfortable. Yeah, that the rise of air conditioning is so I mean, I saw that a lot in Chicago as well, that families would spend their summers in Michigan or Wisconsin. They'd have a cabin there. The whole family would be up there for six weeks, you know, and maybe the maybe the the working partner, usually the husband, I guess, would would sometimes, you know, come up on the weekends, but sometimes he'd take the whole month of August and be up there. And we've really uh, kind of lost something thanks to air conditioning, even though it makes everything more comfortable. But you really sort of, you know, it's also made it where employers can kind of tether people to their desk 52 weeks a year with maybe a couple weeks off for vacation. Well, yes, and Willa Cather and Edith Lewis, once they built their own cottage on Grand Manan Island, which is in the Bay of Fundy, you know, mm. so off, off the coast of Canada, yeah. you know, cold Atlantic waters. Yes, that was the whole point of going there is that it was um, very different from being in Manhattan in August. And it's very funny, too. Sometimes the way that publishing schedules work, Cather had to finish up like proofs or something on one of her novels that was going to come out in the fall season before they could leave. And so there are all these letters where she's complaining about how hot it is and how they're stuck there until she finishes up. Yeah. And then they then they go and escape off to, um, you know, the cold breezes, the lovely breezes and the fogs off Grand Manan. So. Right. Now, I think you described this in your book as a it, it was probably a Boston marriage. How open could they be or how it seems like it was they were in circles that accepted it to some extent that they were romantically involved, but they were not they weren't especially explicit about that either. Well, I would say when we talk about these questions, I would say that, you know, how often does your average straight married couple introduce themselves to people and say, let me describe the sex acts we just committed last night. Right. Right. That's just sort of not right. There may be some circles where that's part of what you do, but I'd say mostly, uh, mostly questions about, you know, intimate bodily sexual matters aren't things that we just sort of discuss. Right. They are things that are presumed based on the law, on social customs, So to say that they weren't explicit is to say, well, of course they weren't, because neither were um, neither were married couples, married straight couples explicit in that way. So I would say that there has been a sense that before Stonewall, people even say before Stonewall is a marker of, you know, the Stonewall Rebellion in Greenwich Village. In the 1960s, they'll say like, well, before Stonewall, everyone was in the closet and then there's like freedom and openness. And that is not the sort of story that I tell. And I think that that story misses changes over time and the ways that history goes up and down. It's not all sort of progress, straightforward uphill or, you know, towards the light and towards progress. I would say that they lived a remarkably open life. Um, Even the idea of the Boston marriage, there's this notion that the Boston marriage was something that died out in the 19th century. That's the idea that women could live together in committed relationships that everyone would recognize as committed and romantic. And then that becomes impossible because there's a new way of looking at sexuality that labels them as deviant. But I think that Catherine Lewis are following the same playbook. They're playing along with the same playbook that 
someone like uh, Sarah Orne Jewett and Annie Fields, mm-hmm. whom Cather meets in 1908, they are still living that way into the early 20th century. And that's in fact when Willa Cather and Edith Lewis move in together in 1908. And it's pretty clear to me that Cather is following the model of what she saw when she visited these two older women in Boston. Mm. Would it have been a danger to Cather's uh, publishing career and, and the way she was treated in the by reviewers and so on if, you know, rumors had gone around? or Or was it something where people were more accepting and, you know, willing to look the other way kind of thing? Well, I mean, so she certainly wasn't out there pretending to be straight. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't out there in public doing things like, um, you know, having a male friend go with her to events, you know, Mm -hmm. to be her beard, as we'd say. That doesn't happen. I mean, certainly I think there are some people who might have scoffed. Well, I'm just even trying to think of who we could think of, say, say Gertrude Stein would be the the figure that most people would think of as being more directly representing herself as a lesbian in her relationship with Alice B. Toklas. But even, you know, Gertrude Stein goes on a tour and becomes something of a popular celebrity after the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas is published, which is actually by Gertrude Stein. So, you know, I'm not I'm not sure. I don't think I don't think anybody in reviews is saying, you know, Willa Cather is a deviant and therefore we don't like her books. I think there's a lot of people who probably kind of know what's going on, but they it's not even don't ask, don't tell. It's just focus on the work. Mm -hmm. It was maybe, you know, with some notable exceptions of, I guess, Hemingway and people like that who had become such celebrities. But a lot of times it was probably people were were maybe reading uh, an occasional magazine article or something about an author. But for the most part, they're reading the books themselves. There's not Twitter and there's there's not, a, you know, a big uh, expectation yeah. that, that a, a writer has to be a public figure and reveal a lot about who they are and who they're dating and so on. Well, there are some people who definitely do that, and that's part of their shtick, right? Uh, mm-hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald is definitely the one who was out there in the 1920s being a celebrity and having, you know, people with cameras following him everywhere. And, you know, Cather doesn't want that, but I don't think that she doesn't want that because she's trying to hide her sexuality. I think she just wants to not be performing being an author all the time. And she, you know, by the 1930s, she's making a good amount of money. Mm. Um, There are people who are making more money than she is. And I think she could have made more money if she had been a different kind of author. But I think she found just about the right balance for her in terms of the return and the financial rewards that she wanted, but also just the ability to go about her life without being bothered all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would you say that knowing more about Edith Lewis tells you anything about Cather's works? Do you read them a little bit differently knowing of her relationship with Edith Lewis? And do you see fingerprints of their creative partnership when you're reading the the books? Or is it something where it tells you more about her life, but you don't necessarily see that translated into the fiction? Well, I think certainly the fiction that's set in the Southwest, I see a mm. lot of the pleasure that they got from their adventures, as Edith mm. Lewis would call them. You know, mm-hmm. they had adventures in the Southwest, and there's just a lot of 
the pleasure of that place for them, the horseback riding, the climbing around in the ruins in Mesa Verde, right? You know, those things come out in the works in ways that make them different for me as a reader, knowing about those experiences. I mean, I would say that Cather herself is a more interesting person, even apart from the works, if she's out there in the world a lot more. Um, And I've been working as one of the co-editors of The Complete Letters of Willa Cather for a number of years now. We're getting to the end. And even just reading all of those letters as we work on annotating them and identifying people, you know, she's not at all the retiring, reclusive person that Mm. we were told she was. And she's just out there and she knows a lot more people and she's a lot more responsive to what's going on around her, um, sometimes through Edith Lewis, through other you know routes as well. And I think she's much more interesting with Edith Lewis there. Mm. You know, she's she's just a more intriguing person. And I think Edith Lewis, too, is an interesting person who was often represented as kind of Cather's lackey or even called her secretary, which, you know, she never learned to type. She was not a secretary of any kind. But I think the two of them together, you know, you just get a much better sense of their engagements with the times and Cather engaged with her times as opposed to turning her back on them, I just think is more interesting. There is something, it's funny, it's hard to put my finger on it, but there is something about these authors, novelists, I guess writing a novel is such a lonely endeavor, but I'm feeling that way about Henry James, for example, too, that you just have such a conception of him alone with all of those words. And then when you hear that he went on a driving tour with Edith Wharton or that he had friendships and... Yeah, when you know that his late novels were dictated. Yeah, so right. So he's not being Someone alone in the room. when he's doing yeah, it. Yeah, right. Somebody is in the room, and that's why those sentences can be three pages long. <laughs> yeah, and it gives you a feeling that this isn't just academic for him and, and that, you know, or for Willa Cather, that they're also experiencing love and friendship and disappointments and all of that. It's It's easy to forget that sometimes when they write so well about other characters. Yeah. And I also think, though, that it it is important to let, for me, to let Willa Cather have artistic liberty. Mm-hmm. So some people, mm-hmm. you know, would think that she is hiding her sexuality because she wasn't writing fiction about lesbians. Mm-hmm. But I just have to think, you know, is every novel just autobiography or even biography? Why can't she write what she wants to write? Why can't she? I mean, there are questions about the ethics of representation. And I know that, you know, in contemporary cultures, these questions about representing the experience of people who are very unlike yourself and being responsible about that. But for the most part, you know, the idea that every novel is just really veiled autobiography for me is just, it's not that interesting anymore. I think there was a point in my life in fact, when I wrote my undergraduate honors thesis, when I wanted to find a hidden Willa Cather in her works, mm. and I'm just thinking, you know, that's not the place to look for her. You know, you've got to look for her in other places. You look in her letters, you look in all sorts of, you know, in her published statements and accounts of her in the press and what other people say about her. That's where you find Willa Cather. 
You know, I feel like, you know, who struggles with this is people who are in your shoes because you have to make decisions when you're writing a book about an author. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you see that all the time where people will say, you know, when reviewers of literary biographies will say, well, you know, I think this particular one lands too hard on the side of trying to find one for one, you know, this, uh, here's a letter that I found, you know, a character with that name, or here's, I can trace this back to this event in this author's life and so on. And, and it becomes, uh, you know, for a reader, you might, you, you can just think something with some mild interest and, and move along. But when you have to decide, you know, what to put between the covers of your book, it becomes this difficult thing. How much is too much and how little is too little? And I guess it probably depends on the the event and the how important it was or how formative you think it might have been for the author. But it does seem like it is maybe the key question for a literary biographer. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because there's a long tradition in Willa Cather criticism and biography of identifying what we call prototypes. Mm. So somebody who is the origin for a particular oh, character. Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and Edith, Edith Lewis herself, when she proposes to E.K. Brown to write the first authorized biography of Willa Cather, she writes him and says, you know, basically, I know all the prototypes. So that's part of her pitch. Like, mm. I'm proposing to you to write this, and you're going to need to talk to me because I can tell you the origins of these things and the works of fiction. So, I mean, there, there's there's been a fair amount of work on that, and sometimes it's interesting. But for my purposes, that wasn't the primary aim of what I was doing. And even like I said, you know, I do work with Cather's works, particularly the Southwestern fiction but I'm interested in something else. I'm interested in the production of the works as embedded in the relationship, which isn't the same as finding one-to-one -one correspondence between characters and events um, mm. and mm -hmm. real life. Right. So they have this creative partnership. Clearly, Edith Lewis was hugely important, and we probably owe a great debt to her for those of us who appreciate Willa Cather and her novels. I'm wondering if Lewis viewed her role in the creative partnership the same way that Cather viewed Lewis's role. I think that Cather knew that she contributed great value mm, good. to the work. And I think that Lewis knew that she had something of great value to contribute. I mean, I certainly think that if Willa Cather did not think that Lewis's contribution of great was of great value, you would not see it consistently, you know, every single work for which there is that pre-publication form and edited type draft, Edith Lewis is there in all of them. Mm -hmm. From The Professor's House in 1925 through Safira and the Slave Girl, the last of Cather's novels to be published. She's there consistently. So I think that we have no idea really of what Willa Cather's prose would be like without Edith Lewis. Mm. I mean, of course, she published some stories before she met Edith Lewis, but I think so much of what people identify as Willa Cather's style, um, you know, I think she still would have been a novelist if she hadn't met Edith Lewis, but I'm not sure that she would have been the same novelist. Uh, and I certainly think that her prose style, so many of the markers of her prose style that people value 
I think that without deep collaboration and without the particular deep collaboration via Lewis, um, it wouldn't have been the same. Yeah. The author is Melissa J. Homestead. The book is The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. Melissa Homestead, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you for having me. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Melissa J. Homestead for joining me. Do check out her book and keep an eye on future projects from her. She told me about one of them that I can't wait to read. You'll hear that in a My Last Book coming up. Speaking of coming up, we've got some good episodes coming up, including a look at the year 1989 and its impact on black cinema, six films, that were significant. We're coming up on episode 500, people. We'll have a special guest here for that one. Hopefully, it's in the works. It's one of your favorites. And the special guest and I will be talking about a book that's been special to me over the years. That's the plan. Elizabeth Bishop is coming up, too, and more Oscar Wilde and some mammoth novels, gargantuan novels, titans striding the literary earth. One uh, English, one Russian. Bond, James Bond and the Beatles with John Higgs is around the corner. So tell all your friends it's time to get on the history of literature train. All aboard. There's plenty of room. The conductor is insane, but never mind that. The journey is exciting. The vistas are spectacular. The future is ours and it is bright. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.